Well, good morning, everyone. Well, welcome once again to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and uh, I'm the other of the co-lead pastors here, the other bald one. Uh, it's good to see. Be, just to be clear, it's bald one, not Baldwin. Very different. Uh, here at One Life, we are in a new Lenten series called Questions God Asks, and uh, today we are very fortunate to have a guest speaker with us, and I'm going to invite him to come forward. I want to introduce you to Verlin Fosner. Verlin is our guest today. He is uh, our area lead for the Assemblies of God North uh, Metro Region, and I have the privilege of serving with him along with that team. And uh, the thing that I've been very thankful for is Verlin's leadership. He has been leading a church for quite some time with 35 years of ministry experience and uh, took a church that has been around for a very long time and uh, was, was fading, honestly. And with him and his leadership, along with the church, they really had a movement of the spirit asking, how is church done and how do we care for our city? And through that, and you're going to hear some more of his story, the dinner collective and community dinners and dinner churches came out of that. And now there's multiple of them around the city and now across the country that are starting as a result of this vision and leadership. And as you heard us speak for a while now, we are launching our own dinner church down in Magnuson. And that has been a lot of the influence of him and his leadership and his example. And um, so we uh, could not be more thankful and honored to have him as our guest. Uh, so if you would give Verlin a big round of welcome of applause. Well, it is a privilege for my wife, Melody, and I to be here. Give a little wave over there, baby, so they know where you are. Um, Greg and Rich are very interesting men. <laughs> and uh, they have uh, a very interesting voice in a lot more than just this congregation, probably more than you realize. I get the privilege of working with them in planning out how it is that we are going to engage our own city uh, in a greater way. And uh, I, I am very, very moved and pleased by the heart of these gentlemen. Uh, the church is in an interesting spot. I mean the church of Jesus Christ. In that we need to start thinking a little differently if we're going to stay in business. And they are willing to think differently. And I am very, very pleased. You should be profoundly pleased to have pastors that are willing to look outside the box and get beyond um, a historical way of doing church and dispensing the gospel uh, because there's uh, a lot of leaders that aren't quite as willing to do that. And uh, so I want you guys both to know we are really proud of you. And we talk about you behind your back quite a lot. And... Uh, I just wanted you to know that. And once in a while, it's good what we say behind your back. It is an honor to be here with you today. Here we are, 10, 11 days into the 40 days of Lent. I think Lent is probably, uh, I don't want to say misunderstood, but I think maybe practiced a little bit shallower than was intended at the beginning. I heard a story about a Catholic priest that was uh, walking uh, home one night. It was dark, and he had taken his clerical collar off and tucked it in the inside of his jacket. 
And as he was walking down a dark street, someone came up behind and put a gun in his back and said, give me your wallet. And so when he reached for his wallet, the would-be thief realized that his clerical collar was hanging there. And he goes, oh, Father, Father, I didn't know, I didn't know you were that. I, there's no way I'm going to rob a priest. And um, so as a show of good fortune and kind of a demonstration of grace, the Catholic priest reached into his pocket and pulled out a cigar and said, here, here you go, son. And the guy says, oh, no, 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 I gave up smoking for Lent. <laughs> Maybe a little more discipleship would have helped that particular gentleman. Lent has been one of the beautiful times uh, of the liturgical church to remember and remind its people of the richness of sacrifice. That's what it's about. Forty days of sharing with and walking in the passion of Christ. We even understand the word passion a little bit too shallow. Our master understood passion as that one thing that is worth dying for. We use passion for, ah, I have a passion for the bass fiddle. I have a passion for, you know, lollipops. I have a passion. We use it so, but it's those things that are worth dying for. It's that sacrificial stuff. And if the church of Jesus or any particular family of the church of Jesus ever loses its ability to know what it's willing to die for, then we are no longer looking like our master. We have got to understand the sacrificial fuel that forwards the body of Christ upon this planet. And in our city. And if we ever lose that, we have lost way more than we think. And it's kind of popular today to uh, make church as comfortable as humanly possible. And it's uh, kind of not accidental, but we wish it was more accidental that then people uh, are created in Christianity that are comfort-based and when, when the idea of sacrifice comes up, I, I mean, I don't sacrifice. I mean, I, I got work to do. I got things to do. I got places to go. I'm not going to sacrifice for the work of Christ. What do you mean? I'll come, I mean, sacrifice is when I put some money in the offering, right? And how beautiful it is to come back to this time where we just remember the deep, deep sacrifice of Christ. And then we remember that each church is an ongoing expression of that very same Christ. And for 40 days, we think about and remember if we're truly Christ followers, then we are willing to sacrifice for something. And that something has to do with the lost people that are in our city because that's what his passion was about. And it's a time for us to practice setting down our comfortable understandings of Christianity and bring back the sacrifice. I remember well my father pastored for many, many years, and he said, son, this is before I actually started in ministry. He said, son, never apologize for asking your people to sacrifice. 
it's good for them. It lets them walk a mile in the shoes of our Jesus. Never apologize. So that's what the Lenten season is about. And if you thought it had to do with giving up M&Ms for 40 days, um, well, that might be a little bit like the, I'm sorry I've given up smoking for Lent. It's a little deeper than that. We're actually walking for 40 days beside our Lord as he is going through the process of the deepest of sacrifices. That's actually what makes Christianity work when large portions of its people are willing to be Christ-like enough to suffer like our Christ. That's, uh, that's really what the true point of Lent is about. That brings me to the verse that, uh, the first of three verses that I want to share with us today. And I believe it's going to be put on the screen behind me. It's the call of Isaiah comes out of uh, chapter 6, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled, is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean, uh, of, of, uh, excuse me, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I answered, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And I'm going to stop mid-sentence, but I'm going to stop there. When we read this verse, we think of how interesting it must have been for Isaiah to have such a holy vision as to be in a place before the very throne of God and the holiness and the wonder and even the the flying seraphims. And in the contrast, he feels the weight of his own fallen human condition. And then one of the seraphims come, and of course, that cleansing, that purging, and he goes, ah, oh, I'm purged. I mean, it's, it had to have been quite an interesting thing. How interesting is it, though, that in that moment of truth where Isaiah has now been ready to see things from God's point of view, the question on God's mind was, and continues to be to this very day, I might add, who can we send? Who are we going to send? 
And in his purified condition, he immediately was capable of shedding his comfort desires and his self-directedness of life. And he stands up as a willing soldier and says, Here I am, Lord. Send me. There is probably nothing that should be the result of the Lenten season any greater than the willingness on the part of a fallen human being like any of us in this room to be capable of standing up and saying, okay, Lord, I know that you have got a rescue project here on this earth. In fact, that's what Christianity is. Christianity is the greatest rescue project this world has ever seen. That's what Christianity is. That's why the people that are going to advance that rescue project need to be capable of sacrifice. And as the Lord looks over the earth, he is wondering, who am I going to send to them? And who am I going to send to rescue them? And who am I going to send to them? And who am I going to send to them? Uh, it's always, who am I going to send? I've got this rescue project that is ongoing. This is the day of salvation that we live in. It's a, a snapshot, a divine snapshot of time that is unlike what happened before the life of Christ. And there is going to come a day where the day of salvation is over. That season is over. But for now, this is the day where the rescue project of God burns at full tilt. When God gets up every morning, I know he didn't go to sleep, but let's pretend he did. When he gets up every morning, his question is, okay, who are we going to send and where are they going to go? Because he's master planning this great rescue project called Christianity. And for those of us that understand the, the true intent of Lent, and we recognize that he's got to send somebody somewhere to some who, and I didn't say that wrong, I'll explain it a little bit better in a minute, to some who, then we stand up willing to sacrifice for that sentness. See, if we're not willing to sacrifice, then we're not going to stand up and say, hey, send me, because we're too busy. we got our own life, our own dreams, our own plans. So joining or taking uh, an important role in the God family rescue business, we, we don't have time and space and place for that. we got stuff. we got things. If we are going to uh, let the true fires of Lent burn away, though, um, our, our, uh, our self-desires to make a little room and time and place and space, we too will stand up. This whole experience that Isaiah had was kind of like a, a lint on steroids, a 40-day goal brought down to a few minutes seemingly here to where he is made ready to stand up and say, yeah, send me to whomever and however you want to empower me to, re to, to rescue them, send me. And so this is a very interesting little snapshot of this season that we are a part of. And it allows us to comprehend the great value of sentness. Can I ask you to say that phrase out loud, sentness? Say it. Sentness. See, the idea of sentness got kind of lost in the Christian church 
for a number of centuries. The apostolic era, the first 300 years of the church, they had a very clear understanding of sentness. The idea of a missionary being separate from just the average run-of-the-mill Christ follower, no such thing. They all understood that they were sent. They understood that a part of their Christian faith and walking with Christ meant that he is going to need me to go rescue somebody somewhere, somehow, in a very direct manner, and sentness is assumed. That got lost for a long time. In fact, um, so serious was the apostolic idea of sentness that literally just a few years after the death of Jesus, uh, the um, death and resurrection, uh, the Christ followers that had been amassed really quickly on, which probably about 20,000 of them, they all recognized, wow, our job is to be sent. And the Holy Spirit began to move upon their hearts, and they started to move out and down those Roman roads and uh, through the Pax Romana and all of that. And it, it was very, very fascinating how many of them understood that, their, that their, their, their basic Christian faith assumed that they were going to be sent to a who. And in some way or another, they were going to do that. Within 35 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian ranks were swelling And surprisingly, as many as 40,000 of them felt called to Rome and ended up moving to Rome because they had been sent. And that was the big central cosmopolitan place that uh, that would affect the entire realm. 40,000 of them ended up there. And they, uh, they were so shocked by the depravity of the Roman culture compared to their culture that had had 700 years with the law, that they, when, once they got there and the whole, you know, we've all heard stories about the Roman excesses and everything from the puke pits to the convivas to the, uh, the depraved way of living that was normal. And when they got there, they were so shocked, they literally cocooned themselves in these little pockets In fact, one of the great reasons for the book of of Romans being written was Paul calling them out, basically saying, listen, uh, you were sent here by our Lord, the Savior of the world, the rescuer of the world. You were sent here to expose these, these people that live in Rome to the beauties of the gospel. You can't keep cocooning yourself in these little holy huddles. In fact... Uh, one of the great uh, theologians by the name of Douglas Moo made it very, he felt that Paul made it very clear that he couldn't even give the church of Rome church status because all they were doing was coming together and having worship gatherings, but they didn't have, they they were not actively engaging the Roman culture because they were scared. And he was calling them out, get outdoors. So what if they're, you know, you got Jesus living in you, get moving. Get outdoors. Get your sentness back. You, you showed up in this city because you were being sent, and now you're cocooning. Stop it. In fact, one of the commendations when you get to the end is he says, well, at the very least, support me then. If you're not going to do it, support me on my missionary journeys. 
And uh, it was a very interesting thing. But that sentness was very real, very obvious. And a group that loses its sentness loses its churchness because it loses its ability to look like Christ. Remember, we are the body of Christ. Can you imagine Jesus coming into a depraved culture, being a little afraid, tucking inside of a, of a gathering and say, well, if they happen to come to me, then, then great. But if they don't, I don't know. I got stuff to do and people to see and, you know, it's not them. And I mean, we literally are supposed to look in this neighborhood and in this city exactly like Christ would look if he lived here. That's what makes a church a church. And our Jesus was sent. I told you that um, the concept of sentness got kind of lost in, uh, in church history. One of the great voices that brought it back at the Brandenburg Conference, clear back in 1932, 85 years ago, the church finally started to win back that understanding of sentness. Carl Barth uh, in the Brandenburg Conference, just uh, basically it's the state that surrounds Berlin over in Germany, but he brought back what he started to refer to as the Missio Dei, or the mission of God. This this rescue mission, if you will. And it basically has this very simple understanding, and it, it, uh, it gets its traction uh, very similar as to what happened with Isaiah, but it gets its traction from John chapter 20. And basically it's the, the Father sent the Son to the earth. Then the Son, Jesus himself, went back to heaven and sent the Spirit. And then the Father and the Son and the Spirit then sends the church. And that's how the rescue mission is to be empowered. That's how Christianity is supposed to, to function. And it wasn't, I mean, just think about it, only in the last 85 years has the phrase and the concept of sentness started to come back. Books starting to be written. Daryl Gooder is one of those great, great voices that really started to pick that up because it kind of got lost in our land. We, we got used to doing church from a comfort-based way of manner and coming on Sundays and, you know, all that kind of thing and kind of lost our own sentence. And thankfully, that, the, the waves of that understanding of sentence is coming upon us again. But I wanted to go back and read this very beautiful story out of John chapter 20. I'm actually only going to read two of the verses. But, um, of course, the, uh, Jesus had died, and uh, the, uh, the ascension hadn't happened yet. The resurrection had happened. The ascension hadn't happened. And his uh, disciples were afraid of the forthcoming persecution, and they had tucked away in a room behind closed doors. And suddenly, Jesus was among them. Boy, wouldn't I love that today. Here we are together, Christ followers, wanting to do right by him, wanting to be capable of standing up and saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Here we are, Lord, send us. But we've got these things in our life, and we've got this tug of war, all very real, all very human. And suddenly, Jesus is with us.
Well, that was what happened to these guys. They were tucked behind closed doors, and suddenly Jesus was with them. And he said to them, peace to you. I like that. Peace to you. First time they'd seen him. They'd heard from the women that the grave was empty. They heard from the angel had told him he had resurrected, but now here he is, right there. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then he had, uh, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the breath of God, is the wind of God. He wasn't breathing on them to be weird. He was doing it as a, as a description, as a demonstration. <sighs> this is how God moves. This is, this is how God works upon the, uh, the, 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 the planet, upon the lost. This is how the rescue mission flows. It's that get in line with the wind of God, the breath of God that gets up every morning and just speaks peace and speaks answers and speaks a, a big embrace back into the family of God. This, oh, that's how the Holy Spirit operates. And he breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this is where that Michio Dei comes from. As the, as the Father sent the Son, and the Son then sent the Holy Spirit in his stead with him now back at the right hand of the Father. Here comes the Holy Spirit to be everywhere at once. And, the, and literally the wind of God is, a cap, is, is capable of getting at each one of our backs and blowing us in a sent direction to where we know how to go and we're empowered to go and we know who to go to, you see. It's a, it's a very remarkable and a very beautiful thing that the wind of the Spirit at our back that directs us, that enables us to say, here I am, Lord, send me. And the Spirit comes and goes, go there. You go there. You go there. And we feel this wind and this empowerment at our back. You see, Lent is getting us ready for going and, you know, under, uh, experiencing the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then what comes next? Fifty days later, it's Pentecost. That's the empowerment of the church. And the church stands up. Now it's empowered to what? Go back and forth the church? No, it's to be sent to a particular people. See, that's what the Missio Day is all about. That's how the uh, day of salvation is empowered. There's the wind at our back that sends us just like the Spirit was sent, just like Jesus was sent. We are all sent. Sentness is the fuel that, it, that, that makes the rescue project of Christianity so vital and powerful upon the earth. And it requires sacrifice. But are we able to stand up and say, wow, this Isaiah thing wasn't just for the prophets. It wasn't just for the big dudes. It's not just for the missionaries. We all have a certain sentness that is going to be blown upon us because why would the Lord waste your talent and your time and your opportunities when he's got an entire world that needs to be rescued? He's got a job to do. It's burning a hole in his soul. 
And we are his exact replication upon the earth. So it probably needs to burn a hole in our soul too. And we have, need to have some of these Isaiah kind of experiences where we get to see him so clearly and see that that question upon him is a big one. Who are we going to send? We don't even know that that's what God asks over and over and over and over and over. The closer we get to God, the more we hear his question. Who am I going to send? Oh, man, i got a world to rescue. Who? Who? To whom am I going to send you to? Who's going to stand up and say, eh, I'll do it. I'll make, I'll make room, time, place, and space in my life. I will let a significant portion of my life be, be sent somewhere to somebody for a reason. You see. This actually brings us to a great understanding of the church. There are churches that are trying to be missional. Uh, in other words, do mission kind of things. Uh, but they haven't really closed in on that who they're sent to. See, until we know who we're sent to, we don't even know what it means to be a missionary to them. Until a church knows which pocket of lost people around them the Holy Spirit is trying to blow the efforts of that church toward, they don't even know how to be sent. See? The who is what empowers the missionary spirit. It's at that point that we understand what, it, what true sentness is about. But to start, we've got to realize that God got up this morning going, who, who do I have to work with today? Who's willing Who's capable of sacrifice? Who's capable of being sent to a pocket of people that are not like them? That don't do life like them? That don't behave in civil manners maybe like they do? But they're in the shadow of their steeple. So, who? See, that's a big question on God's heart. Did you know that's the big question on God's heart? That's the big question on God's heart. It was the big question on God's heart before the day of salvation even got started back in Isaiah's day. It's what prompted the sending of Jesus and the, and the, the chapter, this is the divine chapter of the day of salvation is that God just kept, who do we have to work with? Who are we going to be able to send? We've got a world to get back a world of prodigals to get back to the Father's heart and the Father's family. Martin Luther phrased it really well in the 1500s. Of course, the church had gotten significantly off the track, and Martin Luther was the one that, shall we say, instituted the Reformation that we still live in the shadow of. I mean, our way of doing church was invented in the 1500s, all of this. It's not in the Bible. These guys developed it. And, uh, but he understood something very profound. He understood that conversion was twofold. And the way he worded it was the first conversion is being saved. It's being brought to the Savior. The second conversion is being sent back out to the world. He understood sentness. He understood sentness. 
And, and there are a tremendous amount. One of the, uh, I hate to say post-mortem because the church in America is not dead, but one of the uh, surgical understandings of why the church, why we closed 80 churches this last week around the country and have been doing that since the late 80s, uh, is, is that we have a lot of Christians that have been saved, but they haven't had the second conversion. They haven't been sent. They don't even know who they're sent to. They go back and forth the church for themselves. They don't realize that there is this whole other part of their salvation that is lying in wait, and a divine frustration is happening because, because Jesus needs to get us to that willingness to stand up and say, okay, I understand sentness is next, so I'm in. Send me. And churches are full of people that are not praying that way. They're not asking. They're not making themselves available that way, not willing for that level of sacrifice. And so heaven has goals that the, that the pockets of Christ upon the earth that are supposed to be fulfilling those goals, they're not asking. A number of years ago, as I was working on uh, one of my grad programs, I had the opportunity for our our class to go and sit with our national leaders, 18 of them. Um, and we sat there in that room, and they're uh, responsible for the Assemblies of God uh, nationwide and even its impacts uh, with regards to missions. So 50 million people today in one of the churches that they oversee somewhere around the world. It's a pretty, pretty wide swath. And as we were sitting there, they, it happened to be the day that they came forward with some internal research on the mindset of the average American Assemblies of God Christian. It was a little disturbing. I watched a group of leaders literally mourn this particular statistic. Because the, the, the statistic that was the most frustrating to all of them in that room was that 80% of Assemblies of God people now believe that church was for them. That their church existed for their members. After all, they were paying the money, so they would be the ones to receive what this was all about. Rather than the sentness idea that collectively we are here for them. We are the body of Christ that is sent to reach the world and rescue the world that's around us. So we are here for them, not this is here for us. And so this was about eight years ago. And at that point, 80% of our own constituency had somehow completely marked off the, the sentness understanding. And I watched these guys around the room as they were just like their heads were in their, in their hands and they were just shaking. They go, how did this happen on our watch? How? Because I mean, a lot of them have been in that position for quite a while. Um, I think uh, some of them in the room were literally twice my age. And they said, on our watch, somehow... The understanding that church is to be a, replica, a replication of Christ in their place upon the earth sent. And that has gotten lost to where we have church buildings all across the land full of people who actually think that that's for them. 
See, we're, we're saved, but we're, we're, we're not sent. I remember in our, in our church story how painful it was when we came face-to-face with this in our own story. We had been declining, and uh, it had been for several years that we were declining. And my wife and I had been pastor there for a number of years by that point. First five or six years had done great. And then we started to click, 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 click. We pulled our leadership and their spouses all together. And we just started to say, well, we need to pray about this. We need to look at this. Something's wrong. We literally are declining. Everyone who, who uh, moves or has the audacity to die, we can't replace any of them with our neighbors. Attrition, 14% in the city, that's what it is. So 15% actually, we were, we were declining by 14% per year. So we didn't have the ability to rescue anybody. No one wanted to go to heaven with us except those that already had a church background. And uh, that's basically all that was happening. I remember we sat one night and we went through a few of the gospel, a few of the gospel stories, real key parables, three of them right in a row, the lost uh, sheep and the, lost, the, the woman that had lost her coin, and then the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. And we just, we just you know, those three back-to-back stories and the emphasis is so clear that the God family is in the rescue business willing to leave the 99 behind and go uncomfortably into the dark to go after the one that's lost and the widow willing to literally stop everything to look for one coin and, and you know, all of that. And, and, and we, just, we just had to step back and say, man, the God family is in the rescue business. But we aren't. We're in the Bible business. We're in the Bible teaching business. We're in the go-back-and-forth-the-church business. We're in the Christian fellowship business. We're in all kinds of really good, scriptural, spiritual-sounding things, but it couldn't be said of us that we were in the rescue business. And how interesting it was for us to stand in that room and take a hold of hands and confess before our Lord, wow, we're not in the same business that you're in. No wonder things are kind of declining and going away. We're doing stuff on the earth that's not your stuff quite, and we're not doing the one thing upon the earth that really is your stuff. See, that for us was our second conversion that was happening. Do you hear that? That was sort of like our Isaiah moment. And we found ourselves confessing that we didn't know how to be sent. We certainly didn't know how to bring salvation to Uh, the seculars of our own city. And that was a moment where that second conversion was finally happening to us. And that's a church just a few miles away from me, just on the other side of the freeway up on 145th. That was where we changed. That was where we actually stopped the uh, declines and where we, because we started standing up and saying, here we are, Lord, send us. We don't know who we're going to go to, and we don't know what we're going to do when we get there because, quite frankly, Seattle seculars scare us. We don't even know how to talk to them. But uh, whatever, at least we're willing to say, here we are, Lord, send us. Send us. And what happened next was actually quite amazing. 
and quite interesting. But that was our Isaiah moment. That was our moment where the intention of Lent had actually worked its way to a point to where we were willing to stand up and say, okay, this isn't about comfort. This, all of this nice church campus and remodeled and all this kind of, this isn't actually for us. We are actually here for somebody else. Show us how in the world to rescue them so we can be in the God family rescue business too. And we asked to be brought back into the family rescue business rather than in the Bible business and the church business and whatever else we thought we were in. And what has all happened since then is because of what happened that night when for the first time we stood up and said, okay, Lord, bring on that second conversion. Send us. It had been during that time, though, that... uh, I noticed that as we drove down a particular neighborhood about 80 blocks to the south of our nice church campus that seemingly only was important to the already saved, um, we, uh, every time I drove through the Greenwood neighborhood, how many of you know where the Greenwood neighborhood is, that famous 85th and Greenwood intersection there? Every time uh, my Jeep got into within about three or four blocks of that, inter- that intersection, there was this weird feeling that started to happen to me. And then three or four blocks later, it would, it would lift. It was like a color came over my eyes. It was the strangest thing ever. At one, at a couple of times, I thought I was like getting sick. It felt so physical. And then I realized this is like the fourth time in the last month that I've driven through this neighborhood. And all every time, I get that same feeling. And finally, it was so strong, I pulled our vehicle over to the side of the road and I just sat there and I said, Lord, are you trying to talk to me? I didn't realize it, but I was experiencing a Macedonian call like what Paul had. Paul thought it was, it was strategic for him to go. He had already said, yes, Lord, send me. He was already at second level of conversion. He was already on that. He got that. He was, he was saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Oh, by the way, it seems smart to go over here to Asia, but instead... The Spirit stopped him, and in his sleep, he had that Macedonian call. And it was very profound. And this Macedonian man was waving to him, No, come here, come here. They didn't think very smart to Paul because the population was over here, and that was kind of the small little, it was something, but that was where the Spirit was blowing him. The Spirit wasn't blowing him down that way, the Spirit was blowing him right up there into Macedonia, you see. That was what was happening to me. And uh, I, was, I, I realized we are being called. You're, you're, this is you. This isn't the flu. This is you. You're wanting us to, I mean, the idea that we as a church might be called to a particular neighborhood. And I, as I sat there, I, I started to notice the soreness and the, the, the single older people that were just lined up against the walls uh, of the streets, just sitting there, just looking, nothing to do. And, and the marginalized and the urban isolated folks. And there was all of this, I don't know, people that we would never normally see in our church. We were kind of a high-end church across from the golf course, nice building. I mean, we, we were good, clean group. And yet, the Macedonian call was drawing us down there. 
So when it was time for us to say, wow, Lord, we don't know uh, where we are sent to. Oh, wait. Yeah, we might. As it turns out, we kind of know what to do. And we actually did. At the same time, we were becoming quite fascinated with the the way that the first 300 years did church around those tables, whether it was the house church of the Jews or the uh, big agape feast churches the, when Paul got the gospel ready for the Gentiles. And, and so just like in a, in a little while, we begin to see a how, and we begin to see a who. We had already said, Lord, here am I, you see. And there was this very interesting move of sentness that began to blow across us. I think a church that doesn't know the who that it's supposed to go after, they have no idea how to respond in sentness. We need to know the who because in time we'll know the how, but we definitely will feel this missionary pull. That's what the second conversion does. That's what Lent is supposed to remind us of because Pentecost is coming. And we need to get ourselves ready to, to sacrifice so that we can stand up and say, okay, Lord, okay, 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 send us. It's a great day in the life of a church when they can stand up and say, okay, Lord, send us. We'll, we'll make room in our life. We'll make room in our heart. Send us. Show us a who. Show us a how. The reason I'm quite impressed with your pastors is I was sharing at a leadership meeting. There was only a few of us around a table. Rich and Greg, I don't know if you guys even remember this. I certainly do. Because I shared with them that there was another Macedonian call that was happening with our group. By that point, we'd, we'd now been sucked into numbers of different neighborhoods. We'd had very spiritual wave-in kind of things happen, and we were now in five different neighborhoods at that point. Now we're in more, but at that point, when this conversation happened, we felt this other wave-in start, and it was the Magnuson Park neighborhood. People from that community were coming over to one of our other communities and saying, you guys have got to come do one of these churches over there where we are. We need you. That was starting to happen. And uh, kind of interesting when a secular city like Seattle wants a church to come in for any reason. Isn't that? So I was sharing that with your pastors and a few other people that were there. And I remember your pastor standing up and saying, hey, we've been feeling a tug into Magnuson too. I said, really? No, we want it. <laughs> Went back and talked with our staff and said, hey, is, is this whole Magnuson thing, I mean, we're all feeling the spiritual pull, and yet they're feeling the spiritual pull. They live right over there. They've got, uh, it was just really an interesting thing where we stood back and said, wow. That's one of those scenarios where we are aware that the Spirit wants into that neighborhood. But he's actually not given that one to us. He's given that one to you guys. My wife and I, as we were driving here, we uh, drove up this morning through Magnuson on purpose. And as I drove by, I just couldn't help but think, there is a, there is a 
baby ready to be born right here. The labor pains are already beginning. I am very well aware that you guys are pregnant with a Magnuson church. Somebody inside your group said, here we are, Lord, send us. And he agreed. And you are ready to be given the responsibility by the Lord himself to go to a particular who, a few blocks south of you, because the God family is in the rescue business and he wants that neighborhood around one of his tables. Hmm. I would like to conclude by by giving you the reminder of how it is that Jesus rescues people. comes out of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It's an ongoing vision. This didn't actually happen, but it's a vision that Jesus himself planted upon the earth of his attitude about, about how he wants to reach. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. There's that Jesus table again. And he with me. That verse, man, that just pushed us over the line. Because our Jesus, throughout all time, wants to have dinner with sinners. And he's looking for people to set the table. That was our role. You see, after we'd said, yes, Lord, you can send us, there was another yes that was waiting. And will you do it by just setting my table and sitting there and daring to enter into the life of people who are not like you? They've got a history that you don't even want to share with your kids. A room that fills up with sinners and seculars and strangers whose lives are broken and pained. That's what the Lord gave us in Greenwood and then in Fremont and then in Pike Place and then in Belltown and then in Northgate and then in uh, uh, West Ma- I mean, it, the, it kept on going for us. It keeps on going for us. And the Lord is giving you one of the sorest neighborhoods in the entire city, Magnuson Park. Wow. Pretty cool thing. I do hope that you will find yourself taking a few minutes and considering your second conversion and whatever it means. There is a a wonderful thing that happens to anyone who lives through the Isaiah experience, has their own lint, maybe not even waiting the full 40 days. Maybe it'll come uh, upon you like thunder, like what it did with Isaiah. And in a moment, you stand up and say, okay, Lord, I acknowledge, you. I acknowledge what your big question is, and it's who you're going to send. And I've got a small answer for you, but it's all I've got to give. Here I am, send me. And there are undoubtedly a number of you here in this group that the Lord wants to circle and send you as a part of this church's mission to that neighborhood and maybe others he wants to circle and send to the other church plant and it might very well be that there's others in your future 
Let me just end with a very sobering statistic for us. Washington and Oregon are the two least church states in the United States. Seattle, do you know how many churches we need to open up in Seattle to equal the rest of our church, uh, the rest of our state, which is the lowest churched uh, population to ratio region in the entire country? You know how many more churches we have to plant inside of the city of Seattle to equal the worst? 1,035, just in the city limits. That's how far behind we are. You know how many people are in church today in our city, out of our whole city? 18,000 total in 265 churches, averaging 70 people each. Wow. So there might need to be more churches in you than just these two. Because look at the garden that you're in. Look at the place that we are. But nonetheless, you say, Lord, here I am, send me. That's going to collectively come together with, here we are, send us. And at the very least, you might find that your Christian expression is to come here on Sundays to be strengthened, but Monday night or Tuesday night or wherever else is going on, you're going to go there. Because you're sent by the Savior to be there to reach that group and rescue that group back to the God family. What a calling. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you so very much that you, <laughs> you got our city in mind. You know what it's going to take here for your rescue story to flourish even in this city, the most underchurched city in the entire country, also the fastest-growing city in the country. And yet here we are. By your design, we are here. And yes, you are looking and asking for whom you're going to send to the different pockets of lost people and abandoned groups and isolated circles of our wonderful city's population. And I thank you for the desire and the willingness that has been here as a part of this church. Many people in this church already have stood up and said, okay, Lord, here we are. Send us. God bless them for that. And I'm so glad you took them up on it too. You've got some more sending to do, though, I feel. So may every one of us have an Isaiah experience of our own, have a Lenten experience of our own that ends in our understanding that you're asking who, and they're replying by saying, me. And collectively, that's adding up to where they're standing up and saying, us. And I bless them. In the name of the Lord, amen.